Lord. And I hope that you have a Bible. If you do, we're going to be in Jeremiah 29. If you've been waiting for a change of tone and tune in Jeremiah, then tonight is your night uh, because Jeremiah 29 is the beginning, is a new beginning in the book of Jeremiah. Um, of course, there's been a lot of uh, uplifting, a lot of encouraging messages or scriptures that in Jeremiah so far. The overall tone has been a little bit uh, discouraging, uh, a little bit down. Of course, the people of Israel had went away from God. Jeremiah did not hold back in bringing them the truth uh, from God and from his word. Uh, but tonight, we're going to see a tone and a tune change really drastically in this new section. Really, chapters 29 and 33 is, uh, is sort of like this uh, capsule uh, for uh, a new beginning and something brand new. So we're going to see the tone change from dread and warning to hope and promise uh, tonight, and, and we'll talk about this for the next couple of weeks. So the context and the chronology that sets 29 apart and that separates 29 from what came before it uh, is that in 597 B.C., the thing that Jeremiah had been warning them about, the thing he'd been preaching that was coming, if they did not respond and did not you know, do what he was telling them to do, what God was telling them to do, the thing that finally uh, that he had been telling them was coming, finally came. In 597 BC, the first major, I say first major because there were two, the first major exile took place. Now in 605 BC, you'll remember, uh, Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city. He went in and uh, basically made a big scene and said that the king, Jehoiakim, was uh, to be his uh, stand-in, his puppet, his vassal leader. And he took the royal sons of the house captive. Now, this wasn't a major exile. He just took a few of the royal cabinet, a few of the sons of Judah, back to Babylon with him. One of those was Daniel in 605 B.C. But in 597 B.C., uh, because the people uh, just refused to surrender, refused to turn to God, refused to repent, uh, Jeconiah uh, raised an army and decided that they were going to go up against Nebuchadnezzar and run Nebuchadnezzar's captivity out of the land and take back their freedom and their independence. That did not end well. Uh, before they even raised a sword, Nebuchadnezzar was there, put out the fire um, instantly, took the took Jeconiah and his uh, entire household and many of the people living in Jerusalem captive. Now, the, of course, the tribe of Judah insist, consisted of the land of Judea, which was both the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. But this first exile pretty much cleaned out Jerusalem. Um, and if you lived in surrounding cities like Bethlehem or in the tribe of Benjamin, you did not get taken captive yet, but that would happen 10 years later. So the first major exile uh, that really started this Babylonian captivity that we talk about took place 597 BC. So the three dates you are, are, should be familiar with 605, 597, and 587, uh, which is 587 is when the temple's destroyed, the city's destroyed, the nation is completely um, raised, and, and there is nothing left um, but uh, just uh, an occupied um, Judah that, that Nebuchadnezzar kind of reestablishes, but that's for a later date. Um, Jeremiah uh, uh, survives this exile. He is not taken captive, probably because, as we talked about last week, he's kind of in hiding. Uh, they're trying to kill him. They're trying to silence him. They, he he said, y'all don't want to hear what I've got to say, then I'll take a break for a little while. So he goes off the, the grid for a little bit. He survives the exile or, or stays in the land, if you will. Um, he had a hunch that this was coming. And he also knew that uh, the people would only be more hostile towards him um, as this, uh, this kind of came to a head. So during this time when he's kind of hiding out, 
And while this, uh, this takeover is taking place and Jerusalem's being cleaned out and uh, Nebuchadnezzar is setting up a, a new king in the place of Jeconiah, which is Zedekiah, his, uh, his uncle. Zedekiah, of course, would reign for the next 10 years until it was all said and done. Uh, but Jeremiah, while all this is going on, while the, the terror is coming on the city, Jeremiah sits down to write a letter. Now, you might think, well, you know, what, what, what's the purpose of that? Jeremiah sits down to write a letter that he would send with or send to the people that are taken captive. So in this time period, they're being carted off to, to Babylon. Jeremiah sits down, and sometime in the immediate future, in the immediate aftermath, he sends a letter to the captives, and that letter is what is found in Jeremiah 29. Now, we're not going to cover the whole chapter tonight. We're going to cover Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14, which is, I think, really the, the, the core part, the, the most important part of this letter that he sends to these that are taken captive. So, uh, I mentioned there's a change in tone, there's a change in tune. After years of preaching harshly, his message changes as he picks up his pen. And what I mean by that is, for years, Jeremiah had preached su- submit, that they were God's people, submit to God, God knows best, we've sinned, God has a plan, if we submit to God, submit to Nebuchadnezzar, we'll survive this. Well, they didn't submit. So then it became of became a thing of, hey, Nebuchadnezzar's going to take over the city. If we don't surrender, we're not going to survive. Well, they didn't surrender. So they didn't submit, they didn't surrender. So now he writes a letter that is going to teach them how to survive survive this next season of their life, not as in they were going to die if they didn't do what he said. He wants to see them thrive as exiles. So he writes a letter that teaches them, this is how you can survive the next 70 years and lead your next generation and, and, and teach them how to live. This is how you can survive as in thrive in the exile. I'm going to teach you how to seek the Lord in this new normal that you're going into. Now, Jeremiah's prophecies have been proven true. And seeing that they survived the exile, uh, uh, Jeremiah sought to maintain his voice with them. So they weren't killed. They were taken captive, which they could have been killed. Uh, but God was not done with them yet. God had a promise to keep with them, and he intended on doing so. So Jeremiah writes a letter because he wants to maintain their voice. Now, of course, some of the people that would receive this letter would be people like Daniel. Uh, Daniel was already taken captive before, but he would get a copy of this letter. Also, Ezekiel. Ezekiel um, is sort of contrasted to Daniel. Daniel was in the courts. He was taken captive as a son of Judah. He was brought into the kingdom of Babylon. Ezekiel was taken captive and would grow up in the slums of Babylon. So two different positions. Daniel's in the palace, Ezekiel's in the the, the slums down by the river uh, of Cherim. So both of those prophets would have received this letter and of course many other people as well. Um, Now Jeremiah did not rub it in. He could have said, I told y'all this was going to happen. I mean, hey, I preached this for 20 years or 10 years at this point. I've been preaching this for 10 plus years. Told y'all. So you know what? I don't have anything else to say to you, but that's not what he does. And I'm thankful that that's not what he does. He writes to encourage them and comfort them. Yes, God had disciplined them. There's no getting around that. God was disciplining the people of Israel. But he would not abandon them. And I want you to hear that very clearly. He was not about to abandon them. Yes, they had lost their privilege, but that did not void God's promises. I think sometimes we have a hard time talking about um, what it means to be in a relationship with God is either hot or cold, either you're in or you're out. And we don't understand that in a relationship, um, there, it's more dynamic than that. Um, God was still in the redemption business, 
even though his people pretty much went bankrupt. And what I mean by that is, is what I've written down here at number four, and I hope this can help us understand the heart of God a little better tonight. Our successes or failures are not indicative of God's power. As in, whether I look good or not, or whether I do good or not, whether I make a mess or make a, a, a milestone, I don't reflect God's power. Sometimes I might be walking in it, and sometimes I might be walking far from it, but neither, neither are indicative of the power of God. God exists apart from me, and I'm glad of that. He is able, I hope hear this, He is able whether we answer or obey, and this is important, even in our disobedience, God doesn't lose his power over us. And I hope that that can free us from the fear and anxiety we often live in that religion teaches us to live in because of the insecurity that it's built on. We don't have to wonder, hey, just because we've messed up, has God lost control? Has God lost power over us? If anything, if anything, when we sin, that there is a pathway that we become more sensitive to God and more sensitive to His grace. And the point is that God is more hands-on in our failures or as hands-on in our failures as he, as he is whenever we're walking in His will because God does not throw His hands up the first time we mess up. The story of Israel tells us God does not throw His hands up the 20th time we mess up. Now, that doesn't give you a license to sin. This chapter proves that things don't go well when we disobey God. But God does not go away. You see, God does not forsake us in our sin. He finds us. Isn't that the story of Jesus, the gospel? Jesus says, I didn't come. I, I came to find those that were lost. I didn't come to throw you away. If I wanted to throw you away, I wouldn't have showed up. That's important to remember. Romans 5 gives us this awesome promise. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, why is grace abounding? That sin, though it reigned to death, grace might reign through righteousness. So God has a purpose. God has a mission. He wants to redeem us, and He wants grace to do for us the opposite as sin has done for us or done to us. So that's exactly why it's very much God's will that Israel was to go into exile because there was a disciplinary process that they were going through. He was setting them up for redemption. Now, part of the relationship that we have with God, we know this, he's our father, and part of a parent-child relationship is discipline. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says, For the moment, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We all have experienced that. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So the point of discipline in our relationship with God is that there might be a change. There might be a growth process, which is what his intentions are with Israel. Now, this is a sort of transaction uh, that, that is not God's ideal scenario, as in God does not want to discipline his children. He wants us to get it right the first time. But, of course, we don't. And he's ready to do what he needs to do in the, in the meantime. Now, God, like any parent, is flexible. That's what they don't teach you about parenting, but you learn, isn't it? You learn to be flexible. You have an ideal will, but you learn how to do a be a flexible parent because ideal never is real. Isn't that right? Uh, God was willing to do whatever it takes to see his children get it right. So I think this is something you've all talked about, you've all heard about before. Uh, we've all learned this in church at number seven. Even though the exile was not God's perfect will, it was his permissive will. As in, because God is flexible, 
Because God is a good father who doesn't just quit when things aren't perfect. If he would have quit when things weren't perfect, there would have been no Genesis 4, right? So because God is a flexible father, a gracious father, there is such thing as his permissive will. And what is that about? His permissive will is, hey, this is a room for you to grow, for you to figure this out. This isn't ideal. This isn't what I would have wished you would do, but this is what you did. So now I'm going to have to react in a way that's going to help things get better. And I want us to understand that God's discipline goes hand in hand with his love. That when we think of God's permissive will, we think, well, that's just what God allowed to happen because we messed up and now we're off the rails and it's never going to go the way it's supposed to go. No, the permissive will of God is so that we might get back on track. It's so that we might take the detour, learn from it, grow in it, and get back where we were meant to be. That tells us that God's discipline and God's love are not contrary, but they're complementary. That's an important fact to remember in Jeremiah because Jeremiah has been pretty harsh toward Israel. If you've been here for all this, you've heard that. But he's only been harsh because of who he was talking to. He was talking to God's children, God's people. Proverbs chapter 3 says, My son, Solomon writes to his sons, but really to all of Israel from God, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. The Lord reproves him or her whom he loves. Now, we don't, we don't like being disciplined. We don't like being told we're wrong. That's why some people don't read the Bible, because they're afraid that there's just going to be this kind of come down or this kind of you know, disciplinary moment. But God reproves those that he loves because he wants to see us get it right. So we don't have to chide it or you know, brace for it. It's to help and to heal. And it's always done in a parenting way. Now, even at this point, as Israel is being shipped off to Babylon, God's covenant with them remained. And we talked with this whole series has been called Covenant because it really deals with the covenant God made Israel. God's covenant is still in place. It is not, he doesn't break his covenant because God does not break promises. God's covenant uh, is the subject of the next few chapters because uh, of this you know, removal of Israel from the land. The question became, has God broken his covenant with us? Have we lost out in God's plan because we've been taken from the land? Because the covenant hinged with them being in the land. Now, another key thing, this has been God's plan all along. God was planning to update the terms of his covenant from the very beginning. Now, we, we know that because we call it the old covenant, but they didn't know it was the old covenant. It was the only covenant they had. But we know that God was planning to update his covenant from, from all along. That was just a temporary covenant or a temporary form of it. Israel's exile really just expedited the plans. It really kind of fast-forwarded that, hey, something better needs to be in place, and this is the time to put that into play. So the shelf life of the Old Covenant was coming to an end. The expiration date was revealed. A revised and updated, broader and better one was on the horizon, which that's really good news. Now, there was nothing wrong with the God factor. God had not broken the covenant, but the people had again and again and again. Israel clearly had trouble keeping this covenant because it was a two-sided covenant, if you'll remember. Now, that's why the tune changes. Because the inevitable happened. Israel couldn't keep their part of the deal. God never delights in destruction or sorrow or loss, but it was necessary to advance Israel to a better place. So he ships them off to captivity in Babylon. Now, Jeremiah started a new page to inform of this better plan, this better place, this better covenant And that's what he talks about in these letters that he writes from 29 through 33. Now, again, it's important to note this transition also 
it helps us frame what we've already talked about. If you've been here for our Jeremiah study, you'll notice that I always remind, I've always reminded us that, yes, Jeremiah, it, it, his word is true, but we read it from a New Testament perspective. We read it knowing that there is redemption, and yes, the, the principles that Jeremiah has been teaching us are true, but all along, we've been interjecting the New Covenant into, this chapters, into these chapters. So that's why, if you wonder kind of my style of preaching or why I preach the way I preach, you can't preach the Old Testament without remembering the New Testament should be injected back into it because it's unfinished without the hope of Jesus Christ. That's why when you read Leviticus, especially the first 18 chapters, if you don't take the New Testament into Leviticus with you, you'll be lost because you'll be trying to figure out, hey, how do I do all this and how do I please God this way? That every time we read the Old Testament, Remember the new covenant. Remember how that infers or how that influences and affects what you read. So that's why even with these pre-29 chapters in Jeremiah, we've been looking at them through the promises that we're going to talk about um, in Jeremiah 29 and going forward. So I hope that kind of makes, makes some sense. That's why um, when I preach Jeremiah, uh, I, when I preach any, test, any text in the Bible, um, I, I preach Jeremiah 29 infused and enriched messages uh, because this is God's extension of redemption to us at our worst. You can't get worse than Israel in Jeremiah 29. They've blown it. They've been shipped off. It's over. The promise that God made to Abraham, the promise that he put in motion through Moses, the conquest in Joshua, the kingdom of David, it came to an end and the people were shipped away. This was not part of the plan. So you can't get any lower than Israel in Jeremiah 29. Yet Jeremiah 29 is about reminding us that there is hope even when you've hit the bottom. And I hope that encourages you. And I hope that reminds you that we serve a God who can save and can redeem anybody and everybody's story. Now, Jeremiah 29 can be split up into two parts. I've got it here at number 13 to kind of help frame our text. This is a chapter about waiting. You're in exile. It's not going to end anytime soon. It's going to last 70 years, in fact. And even after those 70 years are over, it's still not going to be the same as it was before. And it's going to take a while to get built back up. While you wait, here's what you should do. And here's what you can expect in the future. So while you wait, and I think this is relevant to us because when we are in a period of waiting, we are always in some kind of waiting period. Right now, Christians, we are waiting for redemption. While we wait, there are two important things to remember. What should we do and what should we expect? While you wait for God to restore and take you to your desired end, this is what you should do and this is what you can expect him to do for you and through you and around you in the future. So with that in mind, the first nine verses are going to be all about what you should do. So hear these verses, and then we'll talk about what they tell us to do. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people who Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah, Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. This letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and uh, Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying. So they sent some letters. Jeremiah snuck this one in the the carrying bag. Verse 4. 
Thus says the Lord, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to whom, to all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. That's kind of a strange, just in, don't even say, hey, how you doing? Hope you're doing well. He just gets right to it. I want you to build a house. I want you to dwell, as in I want you to move in. As in this isn't going to end anytime soon. Don't sit and look out the window thinking that tomorrow things are going to go back to the way they were. Because that ain't going to happen. That's not God's will. Now, I'm not trying to say that's relevant for us literally right now, but it is in a spiritual way. We'll talk about that. He says, build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, and eat their fruit. As in, it's your home. Make the best of it. Take wives, beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters so that you may increase there and not diminish. So Jeremiah's very specific. I want y'all to live. I want you to have families. I want you to, to, to grow as a people. People are thinking, Jeremiah, you sound a lot different, buddy. You were telling us it was all over, gloom and doom, get ready to die. And now you're telling us, hey, there's a reason to live. And verse 7, highlight it, underline it, circle it, bold it. Seek the peace of the city where I have caused you, where I have caused you to be carried away captive. That's a big, that's a lot of word. That's a mouthful, isn't it? The city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. I know it's not where you want to be. It's not where I want you to be. But hey, it's where you're at. Seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive. Pray to the Lord for it, for the city. For in it, it's, for in its peace, you will have peace. Isn't there's a transaction between your, your, your intention and, and the city around you, the impact you make. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in the midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which you, you cause to be dreamed. As in, sometimes you're going to have some emotional, you're going to think about things and dream things that are not indicative of what God is doing. That just is confirming that sometimes we worry a lot. And sometimes we will, you know, we will dream ourselves a reality that is not what God's will is. So don't always listen to what you dream and don't always pay attention to how you feel. Because sometimes that's not God's way of communicating to you. That's the devil's way. Verse 9. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Now, this is interesting because I want to make note of verse 8 and 9 first. Notice we've heard this all along in Jeremiah. Don't listen to the false prophets. Now, this is different, though. They, their message is still contrary to God in Jeremiah, but everything's flipped on its head. This time, the prophets seem to be preaching doom and gloom. The prophets, the false prophets, seem to be saying, it's over, we've blown it. It's, our lives are done. We might as well just wait for it all to end. We might as well just stick our heads in the sand because there's, there's no good that can come out of Babylon. There's nothing that can come out of us living in Babylon. There's no reason to build houses or no reasons to have families, no reasons to seek anything good because we've messed up. It's over the end. So notice it's a change of tone, right? Because Jeremiah was the one preaching doom and gloom before, but now Jeremiah is the one saying, hey, y'all have a reason to live. They were wanting to discourage and dismay the people. They were being hopeless and pessimistic. Now, God shuts that down. Again, because he's priming and prepping Israel and the whole world for a brand new era. Now, this is where I step out, and we are going to get spiritually speaking with this. This is a preview of a brand new era for the world and for God's people. An era that is defined by its unfinished, 
temporary yet redeemable nature. Now hear that very clearly. An era that is defined by its unfinished, temporary, yet redeemable nature. Now, this is a command to the exiles that they should seek to redeem this time. As unideal as it is, this is their reality for the foreseeable future. This text is so important to you and me as Christians in this world. Even all these years later. And it can be simply summed up at number 15. This world is not our home. In a sense, the captivity for Israel was to remind them of their true relationship with this world. God's focus was shifting away from this this being all about one nation as he was now focusing on the whole world. Beginning with the captivity in Babylon, this was what the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. And that continues to this day. It was always part of God's plan. Israel's rebellion really just kept played into this. God was using Israel to introduce the world to the one true God as they would to Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And all these years later, to every corner of the world. This passage sets up the mindset of a believer in these times. What should have been the mindset of the Jews all the time before? What was the mindset of their founding father Abraham? In Hebrews 9, it says that Abraham was looking for a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Abraham knew that Israel wasn't his forever home. He knew that his little territory he got by the trees of Mamre wasn't where he was going to live forever. But the Jewish people lost sight of that. Over time, their theology became more about their geography, as in they couldn't imagine living without being in the land. Their entire you know, theology is about living in the land. They didn't think about the afterlife. They didn't think about, light, about heaven or hell. The Old Testament, they're focusing on living as long as they can because they could not imagine life outside of Israel because they tied their theology to their land, which isn't that different from what we do in today's world, is it? This is the beginning of God resetting Israel. He establishes a new model going forward for every believer. We must remember we are exiles and we must remain in an exile state of mind. And what are we to do while we wait? We are preparing for a greater world to come. So what does God tell them in this text? Well, I'll tell you what he he tells them that being exiles doesn't mean. It doesn't mean isolate from the world. It doesn't mean antagonize the non-believing Gentile nations. Israel got into trouble from the beginning for not trusting God. Now they had no choice because they weren't in their comfort zone. He reminds them, you are strangers, you are sojourners, you are traveling through, but you have a purpose while you travel through this land. Verse 5 and through 7 tell us our purpose while we are exiles. We're not, this world's not our home. But while we have been put where God has sent us, right? Verse 4, I've caused you to be carried away captive there. Right now, you're exiles. You're not going to live there forever. There's a greater place for you in the future. But right now, as far as you know it, this is where you are to be. So while you're there, build a home have a family, take advantage of the opportunities before you, seek the peace of the city. And the point of this is, you are not just exiles, you're ambassadors for the kingdom of God. You are to seek to bring goodness to every corner, God's goodness to every corner. We're supposed to be the change we want to see in the world, be the difference we want to make in the world, be the light we want to shine in the world. 
Jeremiah makes it very clear. Seek the peace of the city by being present in the city. I've got some scripture here in your notes from 1 Peter and then John. 1 Peter's scripture, he talks about how the people of God were to conduct themselves in Rome. A godless empire that was persecuting the, the, the Christian people. The people that were, the, 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 the empire was making it hard for them to be uh, Christians. And Peter says, I don't want you to run away. I want you to be present and I want you to be holy in an unholy world. I want you to pass your time of exile with fear as in don't waste this opportunity opportunity i think john's text is more uh, more pertinent to us and more helpful for us though look at john 17 there at, uh, on the second page of your notes jesus prayed this you'll you know you know the scripture i do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one they are not of the world just as i'm not of the world but i've put them there sanctify them in your truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them. You can't really get any clearer, can you? This text informs us where did God send his people? To Babylon. You don't get more ungodly than Babylon. What does Jeremiah tell the people of God to do? Live your life and make a difference for the God who is not tied to your land. He is tied to your heart. Now, they don't get that yet. He's going to teach them about the new covenant in a little bit. But we know this as Christians, or we should know this. Here's what we have to offer the world. The world cannot find or possess in and of itself. We know God's word. We can know God's will. We are filled with God's spirit. We know his virtues and have no excuse not to follow and enact them in our lives and put them into our world. Isn't that the witness of Dan Isn't that what Daniel did as a witness? He served his role with integrity, with a winsome spirit. He made a difference, didn't he? He didn't cross his arms and say, no way, I'm not doing this. He made a difference when other people weren't bold enough to make a difference. Isn't that what Jesus did with presence and compassion and purpose? Isn't that what the church does in Acts with generosity and activation and word and deed? So yes, we're not of the world, but we are in the world. Who sent us here? Jesus did. We're sent to and for the world. What is our mission or what is our prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means I have a daily responsibility to enact the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. As much as I can do, as much as I know what to do, I have a responsibility to establish the kingdom norms, principles, lifestyles, and activities in my daily life. This is what it means to seek the good and seek the welfare of our city. God wants us to be present in every avenue and ecosystem. You say, well, what is, uh, that doesn't make sense because if we're exiles, doesn't that mean that we're just, we're just temporary? Yes, but we have a job to do while we are exiles. He wants us to be lights, salt, and refuge. I think this is something that doesn't get preached enough. God wants Christians in the business sector, in the medical field, in the education field, in retail, in factories, in government, in public service. He wants his people everywhere because he wants his people making a difference in every avenue of this world. 
So I've got to ask you, because verse 7 is a commandment, right, number 25, how are we, I'll say we because we're a family together, but you can make this personal too, how are you seeking the welfare of your city? How are you maintaining your presence? How are you pursuing peace? How are you working towards a shared prosperity? As in, it's not just about me in my little corner at 272 McGee Road. How am I seeking to, be pro to make prosperity for everybody? As in, what am I doing that includes being a blessing to more than just myself? Are we establishing our presence? Are we pursuing peace? Are we looking toward justice, opportunity, and fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Now, this is what we are to do while we wait. Why does Jeremiah write this letter? Because he knows what they're prone to do. They're going to think that it's just we either got to wait for God to take us home or we got to die here because there's nothing good that can come out of this. God has a word for us tonight. Seek the peace and the good and the best of your city. Live the life that God has given you, the opportunity and the privilege to live. This is what we should do while we wait. And I want to close by talking about what we should expect. As in what we can expect in the future, not just as a reward for being obedient, but as a reward for holding on to God and holding on to hope. Verse 10, For thus saith the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, thoughts to give you a future and a hope, thoughts of welfare, thoughts of a future and a hope. Now that's a verse that probably every teenager learns in today's world, and I'm glad they do. I don't know if we always get it in the context that it's presented to us here. But Jeremiah says in verse 12, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me. I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. I will bring you to the place which I call, bring you from the place which I caused you to be carried away captive. So let me interpret this for the Christian. Where are we exiles at this world? Where is God going to take us when our exile is over? Heaven. That's, the, that's how you correlate this. The, the Jews, it was, hey, get us back to Israel. But listen, Israel's not for the Israel that was back then. It doesn't exist anymore. It was reestablished, but it's not the same Old Testament Israel. So the point of this is, is not that, hey, God's going to give us some earthly eternal, right? This isn't about Israel. This is about Christians and their eternal home. The, the, short, the, the, the immediate promise was, of course, the return to the land. But the eternal promise is how God's going to take us from the exile to eternity. God promises Israel that he will bring them back. Of course, they would be brought back, but they wouldn't be there forever. They're only back in the land for a couple hundred years. Jesus comes into the world, and in 70 AD, they're gone again. So the point of this is that God was establishing, or God was setting the world up for not just a single nation of his people, but a global and worldwide movement. It was for the Jew first, but it was also to the Gentiles. And yes, God has a plan and purpose for Israel in the future, but that doesn't pertain to our mission. The text is teaching us for our current era reminding us that we are working towards a better future, that we are working towards our eternal home. And while we wait, we have been given a job to do, but we have this hope. 
We have this promise in verse number 11. We have these promises in verse 12 and 13 and 14 that God, we can call upon him, we can talk to him, we can find him, and he will find us. I I think 10 and and 11 are perpetual promises to God's people in every generation and every place. God has plans for you, no matter what your circumstances are. As exiles in a world that is contrary to your nature and your destiny, God's plans will not be thwarted. Your purpose cannot be denied. Was it going to be easy for the Jews to live as exiles in a godless empire? No. But was that an option or was that an excuse? No, it wasn't. It tells us that we can maintain a relationship in the most excruciating environments. And I want to make an example out of Daniel again. Daniel outlasted Babylon. Remember, Persia came in, took Babylon over, and then brought, the Jew, brought some of the Jews in as their own uh, captives into and, and, and and the Persian Empire. Some got to go back home, but Daniel remained as a diplomat in the Persian Empire. Daniel was persecuted and targeted. Daniel had many restless nights as he tried to be a light for God in a godless empire. Daniel would, receive, would, would, would have received one of these letters from Jeremiah, and I think he kept it close because it was the only copy of God's Word that he had. He clung to the hope and the promise of God. And one night, he was especially wearied. And while I'm sure he was leaning on this letter from Jeremiah, he also got a personalized word from God. Look here in your notes at this very overlooked passage from Daniel 10. Daniel says he's turned his face toward the ground and was mute because he was just devastated because he didn't think there was going to be a tomorrow. Behold, one of the likeness of the children of man, an angel... Touch my lips. He, I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man. Touch me and strengthen me. And he said, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, Do you not know? Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. So Daniel fighting against Persia. And the angel says, Hey, there's a whole other empire about to come into the world. It's going to get even worse. It's going to get even tougher. But Daniel... I'm going to give you strength, and the Word of God's going to be your strength to anchor you through this difficult time. I think that's really awesome, and I think that's a fulfillment of what Jeremiah has promised to God's people, that we have a purpose and we have a lifeline while we wait. Likewise, the Apostle Paul, when he awaited trial in a prison cell, he reminds us in 2 Timothy that the Lord stood by him and strengthened him. Like Daniel was strengthened by the Lord, so was Paul. And Paul says, hey, I know that God's going to rescue me from the lion's mouth. He's going to rescue me from this evil world, and he's going to give me his heavenly kingdom as a home. So while we wait, what did Daniel do? What did Paul do? They were faithful on their mission. But what did they also expect and anticipate? A kingdom of God that would have no end and that would receive them when their work was done. Jeremiah 29, 11, once again, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace, not of evil. So when you go through a day and you wonder, what could God be thinking? What 
is God up to? Does God know what he's doing? Or is there some other way for me to get through this life? Remember this passage. God's word to us is promising. It's good. It has personal insight to give us. So while we wait, call on him. Lean on him. Trust in him. This text tells us that we sh- what we should do. And it gives us a preview of what we can expect on earth and even better in heaven. I leave you with this Psalm 138. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. That includes you. We have a purpose and God will fulfill it while we are exiles. While we are faithful doing what he's called us to do. And even when it gets tough and we don't know what else don't know if we can do anything right or anything that will be comfortable. God has promised to us. He has thoughts of peace, thoughts of good, thoughts of welfare, and not of evil. Church, I hope this encourages you as much as it does me. We are exiles, but we are also missionaries. This world is not our home, but right now it's our temporary home. And we don't waste away the days but we make the most of them knowing that there is a mission there is a purpose we have a place and a calling and we want to be faithful because we know that God has our best in mind while we wait on earth and of course waiting for us in heaven let me pray for you Father thank you for this reminder thank you for helping to frame this story of israel's exile with our own exile thank you for helping us see our place in this word and helping bring this word to us lord help us to see that we have a job to do each and every day that we have lives to live and we have a difference to make Lord, help us not to get discouraged. Help us to seek the peace of our city, of our world, that we might bring a little more of you into a world that doesn't have you. Lord, help us to understand that while we wait, while we do this job, we also have a hope to look forward to. While we wait on earth, we know that you'll be with us, but we also know that you are taking us to a much better place, that you will fulfill our purpose, Lord, whether it's here or whether it's there. God, encourage us and strengthen us and equip us that we might not give up when it gets tough, because it does. Help us to stay faithful and help us to stay focused and help us uh, to stay on mission. As we have been called exiles and missionaries, as Jesus said, they are not of the world, but I have sent them into it. Help us to make the most of this amazing opportunity to serve you. Stand by us and strengthen us and enable us to make a difference. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.